Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Be praised for all your tenderness by these works of your hands, suns that rise and rains that fall to bless and bring to life your land. Look down upon this winter wheat and be glad that you have made blue for the sky and the color green that fills these fields with praise. Hi everybody and welcome back to a brand new season of Speaking with Joy. I am your host, Joy Clarkson, and after a lengthy break uh, since Christmas, I am delighted to be back with you all. I am speaking to you today from my empty apartment in Scotland. Joel is away for the weekend, and so I have the whole place to myself, and it's been a gloriously free and luxurious Saturday after a busy first week at the university. It has been a very long January, as all Januaries are in Scotland. Um, The days are very short, sometimes five hours long. And the town is absolutely desolate, totally deprived of students. Which has meant that I've gone a little bit crazy, but also gotten a lot of writing done on my PhD. But things are starting to look up because the grocery stores have one pound, by which I mean the currency and not the um, measurement of weight, one pound bunches of daffodils. And so spring is winking at us and maybe not that far away. And so as I dive into this new semester and probably the final semester of my PhD, I'm excited to welcome you back to Speaking with Joy. Now, before I begin this new season and this new episode in earnest, I wanted to share with you a few things about what this season will be like, what these new episodes coming up will be all about. And a part of that is a little disclaimer that because this is my last semester of really writing on the PhD, um, I will probably not be quite as consistent with posting these episodes every week. Um, So it might be every other week, or maybe some weeks I will do one every week. Um, But just keep your eyes peeled on the podcast app. I'll still be posting them, just not with quite as much um, rigidity and regularity. The other thing that I'm looking forward to this semester is I'm taking advantage of all of the brilliant and interesting people that I have around me here at St. Andrews. And so I've kind of pre-recorded several really fun and interesting interviews with people from the university. Uh, And so you have to look forward to this this new season, some really fun interviews with people um, to give you a heads up on what some of those will be. I'm so excited to have Dr. Oliver Langworthy on um, in the next couple of weeks to talk about the church mothers. If you've been listening for a while, then you've probably heard me reference St. Macrina, the teacher, who is the sister of Gregory of Nyssa and Basil the Great. Um, And I was so delighted to get to talk with uh, Dr. Langworthy, who specializes in the Cappadocians, so that kind of early period of the church. And uh, while so often we rightly highlight the church fathers like the Cappadocian fathers and Augustine. Sometimes we miss these beautiful stories of the faithful women coming from that time period. And so 
I had this wonderful time getting to talk with an expert in the time, and uh, we talked about how their lives really show us that the Spirit calls us to live into whatever our vocation is, whether it is as someone who is married, or as someone who is a nun, or as someone who has children, or someone who is a mother, that God's love and Christ's image can be perfected in each one of us, which with whichever vocation we're called into. So that was such a fun uh, conversation, and I'm looking so forward to sharing that with you. And then I had a wonderful conversation with Meg Highland, who studies history here at St. Andrews and is looking to do a PhD um, on some uh, on this wonderful project she's doing on women in. 1000 AD. So she's done this project where she's researched women from different places all over the world. So on every continent and every culture and kind of said, what was it like? What were the different stories that were happening at this period at 1000 AD? And we had a riotous, hilarious conversation about that, which I can't wait to share with you. Um, and then I have other people that are going to be in the podcast as well, like Rebecca Lamb, who you all remember talked about boredom with me last year. And that was one of my most listened to episodes. I think you all really enjoyed that. And I can't wait to have her back on. And George Corbett to talk to us about Dante. Um, it's going to be a marvelous season with interesting people. And I can't wait to share that with you. And the, the final thing that I have really chosen to focus on with this new season is to focus on artists and works that I love over themes. So as you all know, often I will kind of craft the episodes around a theme and then pull in uh, works that relate to that theme. But I decided that this, this new season, I want to think through what are the works and the artists that I most want people to engage with and know about. And then I'm kind of crafting what themes come out of that according to that question first. So I hope this, this, I keep on wanting to call it a semester because I'm so in the academic world, but I hope that this new season, I can share with you some of the, the authors and the musicians and the painters that I love very, very best, that I want to be stored in your arsenal of good things to dwell on. Um, and so that's kind of what I'll be focusing on. Also, before I dive into this week's episode, I wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much to all the people who have generously supported me through Patreon. As I enter into this last leg of the PhD, this last leg of the marathon, it has meant so much to me to have both the financial support, but also the words of encouragement, the prayers, and kind of the sense of companionship in this journey that can be very isolating. Um, for those of you who don't know, Patreon is a website that's kind of set up to let people support artists and creators um, so that they can continue to do their job well. And in my first year of PhD, I found myself pretty burned out and feeling like I didn't have enough time to devote both to my PhD and all the academic stuff that came with that and also doing the, the podcast. And so I kind of took a step of faith. I quit the thing that was draining me um, and not making me enough money and asked people if they'd be willing to support me on Patreon so that I could continue these two things that I feel the most called to, which is really the podcast and in my PhD and my academic work and teaching. And um, I kind of made a way for people to do that. It's either two or $10 a month. And um, the generosity you all have given to me through that has just been really surprising. It has been a, a real way that God has provided for me and provided abundantly more than I could have expected. And the thing that's also been fun about that is that kind of as a thank you for supporting me, I put out newsletters and playlists every month and other fun things. And um, it's really become 
a special thing for me to kind of have this community of people that are a little bit smaller that I get to talk to and share about my journey with. And I've just been really thankful for that. Um, so I wanted to say publicly as I'm headed into this final leg, thank you to everyone who's done that. Uh, you mean a lot to me and you're the reason the podcast is still going. So, and that I'm still going. So thank you very much. So those are the things I wanted to tell you about this new season of Speaking with Joy. First of all, to not count on me to be quite as regular just because I'm finishing up my PhD and um, that is a wild and demanding thing. Also while, you know, teaching and running various things here in St. Andrews in Scotland. Um, secondly, that there will be lots of interesting interviews and that I'm drawing on the wisdom of the people around me. Um, which is such a delightful thing. That's a pretty cool thing about getting to work in a university setting is you're just surrounded by lots of people who have very specific expertises and interesting and random things. And then finally, that these episodes will focus less on the themes and begin with the works and the artists themselves, people that I really think you should know and that I'll build the episodes out of that. Which leads me to this week's episode. Friends, I am so excited to share this artist with you. And honestly, I'm shocked that I've made it through more than two years of podcasts without mentioning him, which I don't think that I have. It's almost like he is so much a part of my heart and my faith and my imagination um, that he goes kind of unspoken, kind of tacitly in everything that I say. And this artist is Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins was a singer-songwriter who was popular mainly in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, I'm going to tell you more about Rich's biography and um, his beliefs and all the interesting things about him, but I want to begin by playing you his music because there's no better way to introduce you to what made me fall in love with his work than by showing his work to you. Now, if I wanted to start by showing you the work that you would know of Rich Mullins, then I might start with this song. So if you grew up in or experienced any similar context to me, you will automatically recognize that tune. But it's always been a little bit sad to me that that is, um, for many people, the only thing they know about Rich Mullins, because it's a good song, but to me it is by far not his very best. So instead of starting you with that song, I want to begin um, with the song that the lyrics from the opening of this podcast were drawn from, because I think it gets to so much of what I love about Rich Mullins, which is his artistry, his poetry, and the way that he's able to awaken a sense of the beautiful and the spiritual in the world. So this is an excerpt um, from the song, The Color Green. I heard the rocks crying out. I heard the rocks crying out. Be praised for all your tenderness by these works of your hands. Sons that rise and rains that fall to bless and bring to life your land. Look down upon this winter wheat and be glad that you have Fill these fields with praise. 
So this is Rich Mullins to me. Artistry, beauty, poetry. I chose this song specifically because he wrote it after a trip that he had with his ragamuffin band, as I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, he had a trip to do some concerts in Ireland, and they were so moved by the landscape and the churches and the sense of history and all the saints that had come before them in in Ireland that he wrote um, this, this piece of music. And... Um, it's written kind of from the perspective of God looking at creation, looking at Ireland, this place that of course is, is characterized by the color green. And I love that line where he says, look down upon this winter wheat and be glad that you have made blue for the sky and the color green that fill these fields with praise. So it's this beautiful song that's basically just thinking about the landscape of Ireland and how all of it kind of raises up its hands in worship of God. And I love the idea of God looking down on the world that he's made and being glad for the colors that he's made. What a beautiful image that is. And of course, I've always connected with this song because of having lived in Scotland. And um, there is something magical about the, this place and these landscapes. And I, I love how he was able to evoke that. It's also fun because he has, um, he does several things to kind of reference the Celtic music. So he has penny whistles in there. And then one of the things he loved best to do was to incorporate hammer dulcimers, um, which is this really cool instrument that is, it's stringed and you, you hammer it with these little um, hammers. Um, and it just gives his music this very kind of Celtic, um, that happy, sad sound um, that it uses with the, with the different modes, musical modes that it's in. But I wanted to just begin you with this song because it gets to the heart of what I love about Rich Mullins. Um, this, this absolute enthrallment with the beauty of the world. His lyrics so often sound to me like they are Gerard Manley Hopkins. They're just poetic. And this enthrallment with beauty, this way of, of seeing God in creation, um, and then this true artistry in the music. Uh, but before I go off too much on a few sing on reasons that I love Rich Mullins, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a brief kind of biography of who he was as a person, and then tell you three things that I really love and appreciate about his music, and, um, and kind of the reason that I've chosen him as one of the artists that I think you must know. And those three reasons are that I love um, his biblical imagination and the way that uh, he was able to vividly capture a Christian way of seeing and experiencing the world. The second reason that I love Rich Mullins is because he wrote out of a sore heart, out of a wounded heart, but because of that, we can find such consolation in his real and raw kind of wrestling with God and music. And then the final reason I love it is because he helped me see the landscape of America as a place that was charged with the grandeur of God. I think it's easy when you come somewhere like England or Scotland, where there's, you know, 1500 years of Christian history, to see these places as um, spiritually meaningful. But he helped me see the plains of Kansas and the hills of North Dakota as places where God's kingdom was spread across the skies. And that's one of the things I love about him best. So those are the three things I'm going to tell you about him. And I'll show you songs. How could I introduce you to Rich Mullins without introducing you to his music? So I'll intersperse this um, 
this episode with with his music, but I would also recommend um, just going and listening to his music, listen to it in full. And I'll probably make a playlist, uh, which I'll post at least on Patreon and maybe more publicly of some of my favorite music from Rich. So Rich Mullins, or Wayne Mullins, as he was known to his family, was born of one of five children to a family in Indiana. His parents were farmers, and he grew up um, in a kind of rural area, worshiping at a Quaker church. So it's, an, it's a tradition that emphasizes silence and justice, and it's kind of a very interesting tradition, specifically in America. Now, what's wonderful about Rich is that obviously he was deeply artistic and poetic and he loved literature and reading, but there was this kind of um, grittiness to him, this Midwestern connection to the land, um, this kind of lack of, of being smooth or elegant that I think he actually took into his music and actually gives it this very kind of gritty real life taste to it. And I think that Part of that is that he was this fifth son of a farmer. He wasn't a romantic poet who um, wore a cravat. He was he was Wayne Mullins who grew up on a farm and saw God's spirit in in the in the waves of wheat. Uh, he went to college for a little while, but worked as a as a youth pastor for a bit. And then in his early twenties, he started a band called Zion. Um, it was very much in that. CCM era of music, if you know what that is, contemporary Christian music, right when you had people like Amy Grant and um, and Michael W. Smith. So he, he had this band Zion, but he, he started to kind of get his break by writing music for people like Amy Grant. And one of the songs that he first actually um, kind of had a hand in in the industry was that he wrote a song for his wedding. He was engaged and then broke off the engagement, and so he gave it to Amy Grant. Uh, and Amy Grant recorded it, and it did well. It's called Doubly Good to You. Ironically, though, in a, um, in a, there's an interview where he talks about this, and he's like, yeah, I sent it to Amy Grant, but I have kind of bad handwriting, and, and he, he never, you'll know this when you listen to him, he's got a serviceable voice, but he wasn't like an amazing singer. And so she gets this tape, and she listens to it, and she gets one of the lyrics wrong. Uh, so it was recorded with the wrong lyrics and he was kind of a little snobby about it. Cause he was like, well, obviously I was saying the moon, um, was setting, not rising because the whole orientation of the song was in a circle. Cause it's supposed to be the sun rising and the moon setting. And, and so he got annoyed with her, um, for not getting the lyrics right. Um, but this is kind of how he made his break was originally through writing music that other artists kind of began to perform. But then um, later in the 80s, in the late 80s, and then the early 90s, he became popular in his own right, and he did some solo projects. Um, first he had Pictures in the Sky, then Winds of Heaven, Stuff of Earth. I love the, um, <laughs> the cover for this one, is him with his dog, Bear, which is excellent. Um, and then he had Never Picture Perfect, and one of my favorite albums of his is The World is Best as I Remember It. And then, um, Later on, uh, in, into the early 90s, he actually started touring with a band. So he had the Ragamuffin Band, which would later become the basis for the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, um, written by Brendan Manning, kind of about his experiences with Rich Mullins. Um, and I think part of the reason he ended up with this band was he kind of wanted to have a sense of camaraderie around him. And this related to the fact that despite the fact that Rich became kind of well-known and very well-beloved, in, in the Christian music world, he really 
he, it never sat well with him. He never settled in or, or felt at ease in that world. And there were several reasons for this. One was simply that he was an out-of-the-box fellow who could not be tamed. He would go to concerts barefoot. Um, his management was always trying to get him to lose weight or dress a certain way. And he was just not going to be that. He was a wild-haired, barefoot um, artist who, who kind of couldn't be fit into the neat um, Christian music mold. And this was kind of a frustration for him. And he kind of chafed against that. But another really large reason was that he, he was a little bit of an agitator. He was deeply devoted to Jesus, and that was his whole life. Uh, but he wasn't afraid to call out kind of the sins and issues in American Christianity, even when it was the very people who were listening to him. He was kind of not afraid to cut himself off at the knees by criticizing the hypocrisy in the very kind of group of people that bought his music. But I don't think this was just kind of out, out of some kind of desire to virtue signal or make other people feel guilty. He had this real deep desire to follow Jesus with integrity. And he made it a big deal in his own life to try to live in a way that he felt like reflected the heart of Christ. And that for him meant that he wanted to be humble, that he wanted to not seek kind of fame or popularity. It's interesting, if you watch a lot of his, his concerts, he will, um, you know, people loved his music, but he, he would kind of self-deprecate and be like, listen, I want you to enjoy my music and, and feel free to be entertained by it, but this is not church. This is not, going to a Christian concert is not being a Christian. Um, be the person who gives up your wealth, read your Bible, go to church, love people, give to the poor, uh, don't, don't look to me as a model. Um, but he was a pretty good model. It's interesting. One of the facts I love best about him was that even at the height of his career, he didn't want to be kind of seduced by money. And so he had his manager give him the average salary of like a good blue collar worker. And then he had the rest of it given away. And I think that's just kind of a picture of who he was. He wanted to be simple. He wanted to not... Um, get caught in the materialism and the hypocrisy that he saw around him and just the suburban lifestyle of wanting to get more and feel comfortable. Um, right near his, near the end of his life, um, he, he gave this concert in which he very famously said, Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And this is what I've come to think. If I want to identify fully with Jesus Christ, who I claim to be my savior and my Lord, the best way I can do that is to identify with the poor. And I know this will go against the teachings of all the popular evangelical preachers, but they're just wrong. They're not bad, just wrong. Christianity is not about building up an absolutely little secure niche in the world where you can live with your perfect little wife and your perfect little children in a beautiful little house where there's no minority groups or gays anywhere near you. Christianity is about learning to love like Jesus loved. And Jesus loved the poor and he loved the brokenhearted. So um, one could say as you read this, read this passage that there were shots fired. He was not afraid to kind of agitate and to remind people that Christianity was about radically following Jesus and radically loving people and not only about our comfort and security in the world. And it's funny, as, as, as I was watching back through interviews with him and stuff, there is almost this discomfort when you 
when you watch him, um, you can't help but feel like maybe Rich Mullins would probably judge you a little bit. But I think actually that discomfort is a very good thing in some ways and a refreshing thing. It's the discomfort of listening to the prophets in the Old Testament, of, of not feeling comfortable that we are perfectly good and do everything perfectly right, of we need people in the world who have a pebble in their shoe, who make us say, am I really giving my all to Jesus? Am I really living in a way that says that my resources are God's resources and my neighbor's resources? Um, and the thing is, I think that this agitation he expressed wasn't just a judgment of other people. I think he really had a sense of his own inadequacy and his own kind of fears and and failings and shortcomings. And um, and But that awareness and that discomfort, a lot of his friends, I read a book by Carolyn Ahrens, who was another um, CCM artist at that time, and she said that he was just always a little bit kind of restless. But I think surely to some extent that restlessness might actually be something that could cause us to think about our own hearts and to think about our own faith that can actually be a purifying and a good thing. But all this to say, he did not exactly fit in the CCM world. And the, the third reason he didn't, um, so he wasn't very easy to manage. He was barefoot and bedraggled and weighed too much or too little, depending on the time. He was liable to agitate and say not offensive or bad things, just just to kind of call out the hypocrisy he saw um, sometimes in the church. Um, but he also didn't fit in because in the midst of a lot of really good, but very kind of concerty, worshipy music, his music was complex and weird and, um, and poetic in a way that's just really unique and wonderful. So he kind of didn't fit in, but he was this interesting voice that people really interested in near uh near the end of his life he he kind of became dissatisfied this is a theme i think uh, which i really identify with i can understand that sense of dissatisfaction he became dissatisfied just only touring and so he studied at a bible college um he learned he, he got a degree in music education and he actually moved on to a navajo reservation and taught music um on reservation and I think this was kind of the culmination in some ways of, for him, what it meant to identify with the poor, um, to identify with those who had been kind of left out and ignored um, by by the government, by people around us. He didn't see himself as a missionary. He saw himself as going there and doing something he loved. Um, and, and he said, really, it was a way to keep his soul alive. He said he was kind of feeling like his soul was under jeopardy uh, living in suburbia. I think in some ways you could see his move to the reservation as being his kind of full and final identification with the poor, with the people who had been forgotten and trodden upon by by society and the government, um, and his true identification with his favorite saint, who was St. Francis. He loved St. Francis and um, started an organization called the Kid, Kid Brothers of St. Frank, because he loved him so much. And one of my favorite fun facts about Rich Mullins is that he wrote a rock opera um, in which he kind of westernized, by, mean, by which I mean the Wild West. He made a Wild West version of the story of St. Francis. So, of course, St. Francis is the one who is the, is the famous saint of medieval Europe who was the wealthy son of a merchant. But when he had an encounter with Christ, he gave up everything he had and, um, 
and renewed the church and worked with the poor. And he was famous for loving creation and preaching to the birds. And of course, the famous story about him is that um, when he recanted all of his wealth, he even threw off his clothes and ran through the streets naked, saying he'd had this conversion to Christ. St. Francis is wild and amazing. And I think this really captured what Rich wanted his faith to be. He wanted it to be a faith that was given everything to Christ, that saw Christ in creation, and that gave everything he had to the poor and those who were overlooked and ignored. And so I think his move to the reservation was really kind of almost in the spirit of St. Frank, as he would call him, um, and was kind of that full identification of wanting to live a radical life for Christ that took his teachings, that took the Sermon on the Mount seriously. And um, you should, I'll, I'll put links to this in the show notes, but do go look up um, his excellent rock opera, which he wrote with some friends, um, a, in which he makes a Western version of St. Francis' life story, in which instead of Italian noblemen, it's um, freed slaves and Native Americans. And anyway, it's great. Go find it. I will put links to it. So he lived in the reservation for a few years um, and then tragically died in a car accident on the way to a concert. And his death was met with incredible outpourings of grief. I think that he represented to people this, this kind of faith that people were hungry for, a faith that was authentic and open, that acknowledged his questions and doubts and his shortcomings, but that also saw the glory of God in creation, and that was alive and um, and sensitive to the pain and glory of the world, and to God's presence in it. At the time when he when he died, he had been recording. Um, he'd been getting ready to record an album called the Jesus Album, and he had recorded all of the tracks just kind of like in his garage, just with a tape recorder, and that's actually recorded. You can go and listen to it. Um, it's on Spotify, uh, these very rough cut versions of the album. And then a whole bunch of other artists after his death went on to kind of do fully produced versions. But I just, I love that album. And there's, there's a song on there that is one of my life songs. It's called Hard to Get. And it begins with the lyric, you who live in radiance, hear the prayers of those of us who live in skin, um, who are afraid of being left by those who we love, who get hardened in the hurt. And there's just this sense of, he's, he's kind of talking about, you know, he believes in God and he's trying to understand, but over and over again, uh, he says, it's just your ways and you are just plain hard to get. And then it ends with acting like God is playing hard to get. Um, and there's something about that song, go listen to it, um, that has always really touched me because... It's in this posture of absolutely wanting to believe um, and finding it difficult. But through writing that song and laying all of those, those emotions open to God, what could be a greater act of faith and of pouring our heart out before God than, than to admit all of those feelings and all of those doubts? And I think that was the gift, one of the main gifts that he gave to the world. Well, now that I've ranted for 20 minutes about his story, although I hope that you've enjoyed some of that rant, um, I want to tell you the three reasons. I want to talk to you a little bit more about the three reasons that I love his music, and I'll show you some examples of why I love his music. So the first thing that I think Rich Mullins gives as a gift to the world is his 
scriptural and Christian imagination. What I love about his music is that when you listen to it, it's not just that he quotes scripture or that he says apt things about Christianity, but he helps you be able to see the world in a Christian way because the scripture that he's imbibed has become so much a part of his heart that he's able to spin it back into the modern world and see it everywhere he looks. Rich loved the Bible and he talked about it all the time. Um, There's this excellent quote where he says, the Bible is not a book for the faint of heart. It is a book full of all the greed and glory and violence and tenderness and sex and betrayal and betrayal that benefits mankind. It is not the collection of pretty little anecdotes mouthed by pious little church mice. It does not so much nibble at our shoe leather as it cuts to the heart and splits the marrow from the bone. It does not give us answers fitted to our small-minded questions, but truth that goes beyond what we even know to ask. What I love about even this quote is that splits the marrow from the bone is a quote directly from scripture. His music is full of references to the Bible and he kind of does it without even meaning to. It's so much a part of his DNA that it just slips into lyrics. And a lot of his music um, deals with stories in the Bible, uh, but also it'll just be, um, it's so present in his mind that it ends up in the lyrics that I mean to. And I think growing up listening to his music helped me approach the Bible, uh, not as something to proof text, not as just being little discreet ideas, but as being something that was the grand, masterful story of God, something that was exciting and interesting, um, not something that was merely a book of rules. And in that way, he helped me be excited about scripture. And the example I'm gonna show to you is not actually an example of scripture, but on the flip side of that also, he kind of found these beautiful and artistic ways to introduce key parts of Christian practice or doctrine into his music. So in one of these, um, if you're in a more liturgical um, church, you know, there's this bit where we pass the peace, right? Where um, usually before communion, you say the priest of Christ be with you. And then everyone goes around and does that with each other. And he would write music to accompany those moments in church. So there's Um, the peace uh, blessing that he writes. And then my favorite version of this, though, is one of his most iconic songs, which is called Creed. And it is the Apostles' Creed set to music. And friends, this is how 11-year-old Joy learned the Apostles' Creed. Um, I'm going to play you a segment of this. And another fun thing to note, if many of you were with me over the Summer Book Club, um you know that we read G.K. Chesterton, and he loves G.K. Chesterton. Oh, that would be Joel telling me he's coming home in the 1037 train. Um, uh, Rich Mullins loved G.K. Chesterton, and he had been reading him particularly at this moment, and there's this line where Chesterton says in Orthodoxy, um, this is what I believe. I did not make it. It is making me. It is the very truth of God. And so uh, Rich Mullins takes that and makes this into a chorus for the Apostles' Creed. Another thing to note is he's using the hammer dulcimer, which is this very kind of typical rich thing to do, which I love so much. I'm going to play you the first verse and chorus of this song, Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of Heaven and Maker of Earth. 
Oh my gosh, guys, how epic is that song? So as a young kid growing up, I listened to that music and it was glorious and it was skillful and it was haunting. And I learned the Apostles' Creed. And that I think is one of the gifts that I love best about Rich is that he gave us music that took Christianity not as kind of ideas that we must tick off very neatly in our minds, but as the passionate beautiful story of God's love in the world. And the way that he used music um, emphasized that and helped me imbibe the Christian and scriptural imagination in a way that woke up my heart to the beauty of what it was. In funny ways, I feel like introducing you all to Rich Mullins um, should make sense more of who I am as a person. So that's the first thing that I love about Rich. Um, I learned the Apostles' Creed by listening to his music because he helped me see Christianity as something that was on fire, and he used his music to do that well. So the second thing that I love about Rich Mullins, the thing that I think is the gift that he gave the world, and in some ways I think this might be the greatest gift, and that was the honesty and openness with which he wrote his music. Rich was not one who was afraid to hide the darker parts of who he was, and the flaws, and things that were difficult. I kind of think that much of his music feels like listening to an open wound. And I think the reason that's so moving to people is that even if we don't mean to, we spend a lot of our lives kind of trying to, just trying to be okay, and trying to appear like we're okay. And so to hear somebody say those things that we can hardly admit to ourselves, whether it's struggling to believe in God or um, being really confused by the fact that we love God and that the world is broken and things are difficult, or whether it's hearing someone talk about the ways in which we can love people deeply and still have profoundly broken relationships. There is this solidarity and comfort and knowing that we are not the only one who has ever felt this way. And, and knowing that we are not somehow uniquely broken and alone. And I think also there's a hope in it. To be able to listen to somebody else's music who reckons with this brokenness in the world. And yet still finds a faith um, in the midst of that brokenness. There's, there's a hope that maybe I can make it too. Maybe... I belong to this community of faith, even though I have these scars and these, these heavy burdens. Um, because if he can make it, so can I. And, and Rich's music really deals deeply with these things. It's like the, the song I was telling you about earlier, Hard to Get, that he just so simply and honestly articulated how we can often feel about God, that God is hard to get, hard for us to understand. Um, but it can also sometimes feel like God is distant. And even in articulating that, he opened up a space for people to be able to bring their questions and their doubts um, and not feel alone in them and know that that could actually be an act of faith. And I think my favorite example of this 
is um, this song called We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. And I'm not sure if this is true, um, but I feel pretty good saying it. I think this is something to do with his broken off engagement, which was obviously something that um, impacted him pretty deeply. And this song very simply is about the experience of, of loving someone deeply and the relationship breaking in a way that can't be unbroken and kind of wrestling with how frail humans are that we can get into this situation. And um, I think the chorus is perhaps some of my, my favorite lyrics of all time. The chorus, the words are, we are frail, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these are hells and our heavens, so few inches apart. We must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. And to me, these words, they're, they're so few. It's not that many words, but they so achingly capture the experience of being human. How much we want to do good, how much we want to love well, to be close to people, to, to belong, and, and how hard it is. Once in an interview, um, he said this about his own kind of experience of this difficulty with relationships. I would always be frustrated with all those relationships, even when I was engaged. I had a 10-year thing with this girl, and I would often wonder why, even in those most intimate moments of our relationship, I would still feel really lonely. And it was just a few years ago that I finally realized that friendship is not a remedy for loneliness. Loneliness is a part of our experience, and if we are looking for relief from that loneliness in friendship, we will only frustrate the friendship. Friendship, camaraderie, intimacy, all those things and loneliness live together in the same experience. I think this is such a profound thing to say, which is really that we all have that experience of feeling unknown or unloved, and that in so much as we don't address that feeling in ourselves, we kind of bring it into every relationship we have, um, seeking some kind of fulfillment that then just puts pressure on every relationship we have to be the thing that fills that hole. So much more could be said about that, but let me play you a portion of this song, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. Lifted the hand of God Almighty to part the waters and the sea. But it only took one little lie to separate you and me. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. And this ain't one day, Joshua, he made the sun stand still in the sky. But I can't even keep these thoughts of you from passing by. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are frail, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion. Choking on the fumes of selfish rage And with these our hells and our heavens So few inches apart We must be awfully small and not 
You must go listen to the rest of the song. I think if Rich Mullins were here today, I would thank him for not wasting our time with music that wasn't true to the human experience. I think that life is difficult and that we need to sing and think and bring all that we are to God. And listening to his music has helped me do that. And in that way, it has both strengthened and sometimes saved or sustained my faith because he was a model of teaching me how to bring all of those different things to God and faith. And so now we loop back round to my final reason for loving Rich Mullins, which has to do with what I began this episode all about, which is landscapes and Scotland and beauty and loveliness. One of the things that I think I love best about Rich Mullins is that he helped me see American landscape as a place that was, as Gerard Manley Hopkins would put it, charged with the grandeur of God. There's this wonderful little phrase here in Scotland that's used um, in Celtic places in general called thin places. And a thin place is a place where the veil between heaven and earth or between the spiritual and the physical is very thin, where you feel the presence of God more keenly and more closely. I think experientially we can all kind of get our heads around what a thin place is. It's a place where you feel there's kind of a spiritual potency, that somehow God is closer, that your heart is more alive. And I have to say there's quite a lot of thin places in Scotland. And I think part of that is simply because it has such a rich and long history of, um, of faith. You know, there's been about 1600 years, if not more, of, of the Christian faith on this island. So it's easy to see the landscape, both in its beauty, but also in its history, as being a thin place, a place where you can feel the prayer-soaked walls that have had prayers being prayed there for 900 years, where you can sense the presence of God because people have been praying and seeking him here for 1500 years. Uh, a while ago, a academic theologian over here in the UK, John Milbank, tweeted rather provocatively that um, he, he tweeted a picture of a, a British countryside and said, the British countryside is full of character um, and of meaning, whereas the American landscape is simply empty. Of course, this was met with a great deal of consternation and annoyance from Americans, very rightly in my mind. Um, how can one simply proclaim the entirety of North America to be empty and vacuous? But I do think that something that Americans sometimes struggle with is that um, Europeans are relatively recent arrivals to North America, and so there's almost nowhere we can look that has, to our memory or our minds, more than a couple hundred years of history. And so sometimes maybe it's easier when you're walking around Scotland to go, look at that beautiful hillside. St. Patrick saw it, if you're in Ireland, um, and prayed for the conversion of Ireland or whatever. There's kind of an easier way of relating to the spiritual nature of what this landscape means. And it's easier to say these places are thin places. Hypothetically, that is. But I will say that thanks to Rich Mullins, I never saw the landscape of America as being somewhere that was barren. His music taught me to see the plains of Kansas and the Black Hills of Dakota and the mountains of Colorado as places that were the theater of God's glory, where God was present. Um, and I think that's because he saw it that way. His, 
his heart that was so trained on scripture and scripture being so full of trees clapping their hands for God and um, the sun being God's cloak, he, he saw the world that way and he helped me see the American landscape that way. He helped me see the American landscape as something that sang the glory of God. So that's what I am thankful, the final thing I am thankful to Rich Mullins for, is training my eyes to see the American landscapes in all of their barren glory um, as being places that sing of God's beauty and His glory and His praise. And I have a very specific memory of, um, of this being brought home to me, which I kind of wanted to end this, this episode with sharing to, with you. Um, as many of you know, my parents are in ministry, and when they first got married, my mom had been a missionary in what was then um, Poland and Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia and kind of Eastern Europe when it was still communist. And then when my parents got married, they lived in Vienna for the first few years of their marriage where my dad worked for the International Chapel and um, had my brother there. So a lot of our family history um, in my parents' early years was, was in Vienna. And so when we turned 15, um, by which I mean consecutively, we did not all turn 15 at once, my mother would take each one of us on individual trips. She'd save up for years and years to take us on a trip to Vienna to kind of visit where our family roots had begun in their story. And when I was 15, I remember I went and it was just this marvelous trip and we went all over. We ended up going to Poland, which I love. I love Krakow. And um, we'd been on the trip for several weeks and we were in the Alps, the Alps of all places. And it was gorgeous and glorious and I loved it. But I remember listening to my little iPod, this little pink iPod back then. It didn't have cell service, of course. And I listened to, I don't remember if it came on my iPod or if I listened to it on purpose. I listened to the song that I'm going to end today with, which is Rich Mullen's song, Calling Out Your Name. And sitting there in the Austrian Alps, I wanted to be driving through the plains of Kansas. I wanted to be on a big empty highway with a hawk on the phone pole, and I wanted to watch a thunderstorm come over the landscape. And I think that the thing that I love about Rich Mullins is that he loved the land that he lived in. And he saw it with eyes that saw the spiritual potency and beauty behind it. And it taught me to, to love America. And sometimes when I, when I get homesick, as you do from time to time, I'll listen to Rich Mullins and think of, of him seeing and loving the land that I grew up in. And not just seeing it and loving it, but seeing it as something that brought glory to God. And that loops us back around to that first song that I showed you, which of course was him celebrating the beauty of Ireland and talking about God looking down on the green grass of Ireland um, and hoping that it bring, bring him pleasure to think of having created blue for the sky and the color green. But I think what his music helped me see is that that just doesn't have to be the ancient European lands. It is also the land of North America where buffaloes range and um, where there have been people seeking God in the skies for thousands of years. And sometimes I've wondered if um, even his connection uh, with the Native American reservations, if him kind of being aware of that history in America helped him see the land more closely and more keenly. But this is a really common theme throughout his music is celebrating the beauty of creation and seeing creation as something which purely through being itself, brings glory to God. 
And so I want to end today with one of my very favorite songs by Rich Mullins of all time, which is called Calling Out Your Name. And it was written after he did a motorcycle trip through Kansas and through the West and is about the way in which nature calls out the name of God and shakes up our hearts to long for him and to long for his justice and his righteousness. And I am thankful for the way in which Rich helped me love the lands that I grew up on and see them as the canvas of God's glory. Well, friends, I hope that you have enjoyed this episode and that some of the topics and and things along the way would have encouraged your heart or make you think. And more than anything, I hope this, this will encourage you to go listen to Rich Mullins and to be fed by his beautiful music. If you've enjoyed this episode, please go and leave a rating and a review on iTunes that helps other people find this podcast. And without further ado, I wish you a lovely week, and I hope that you enjoy this song, Calling Out Your Name, by Rich Mullins.
sky, I see the sky about to rain, and I hear the prairies calling out your name. Calling out your name 